Lyft is a ride-sharing company that generates a high volume of data every day. This data includes ride history, pricing information, mapping, routing, and financial transactions. The data is stored across a variety of different databases, data lakes, and queuing systems. It's processed at scale in order to generate machine learning models, reports, and data applications. Data workflows involve a set of interconnected systems, such as Kubernetes, Spark, TensorFlow, and Flink. In order for these systems to work harmoniously together, a workflow manager is often used to orchestrate them. A workflow platform lets a data engineer have a high-level view into how data moves through a system, and it can be used to reason about retries and resource utilization and scalability. Flight is a data processing system built and open-sourced at Lyft. Allison Gale and Keaton Umare work at Lyft, and they join the show to discuss how Flight works and why they needed to build a new workflow processing system where there are already tools such as Airflow. This is a great show about data engineering and a look into the modern data engineering process of a large company like Lyft. Allison Caton, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So you both work at Lyft. Lyft has several different teams that require high-volume data processing. And some of these teams are building machine learning applications. Other teams, maybe they're just building complicated workflows involving large data sets and parallel computing. Allison, could you start off by talking about some of the teams that need to do large-scale data processing at Lyft? Yeah, happy to do that. Yeah, so when you open the Lyft app and you look at it, it, it comes across as a single app, but in reality, it's a collection of services that all talk to each other. And some of those are machine learning services like uh, our pricing or ETA, as well as kind of services that require large-scale compute, like the foundational map that everything is built off of. So Flight actually services all of these. Um, most numbers that you see in the app are actually powered by Flight. So pricing is actually my favorite example you serve a price for Lyft, uh, it actually requires many different kind of data inputs. So for example, you have to know how long the ride is, um, how long you expect it to take, what type of ride it is, um, and then also things like tolls or any other like regulations that might factor into the price. So the pricing team uses Flight to actually do all of their model training. So they put all these, or all these inputs into their workflow and then out, eventually out pops the price. And the other thing to highlight here is that all of these services are pretty much interconnected and interdependent. So the ETA for the ride will also affect the price. Um, and then again, like which route we take them on will affect the ETA, which then affects the price. So it's pretty neat. All these services basically have workflows on flight and they all interact together. And so flight does a really good job at helping them kind of share different, I guess, well, we call them tasks in flight. We'll get more into that later. But it helps them basically manage these dependencies as well as the compute itself. What are the pain points of these kinds of applications that involve large-scale data processing, the pain points of the people who are building these kinds of applications? Yeah, so one of them is infrastructure itself. So a lot of machine learning is managing infra, everything from the type of machine you're using to actually like you know retrying something if it fails. Um, the other thing is sharing and collaboration. So as I mentioned, Lyft and just increasingly in the business world, a lot of a lot of these services are inter, like interdependent, interconnected. And so one kind of principle is that you would only want to build something once, right? 
So if we have a pricing model um, and the ETA team, again, estimate time of arrivals, if that team wants to use pricing in their own machine learning model, we don't want them to have to rebuild that pricing model from scratch. So in general, infra is a huge hurdle as well as kind of sharing and collaboration. Um, So Flight kind of works to solve both of these. The structure of a data team is an evolving subject. We have data engineers, we have data scientists, we have data wranglers, we have data analysts. Tell me about how you have both seen the structure of data teams change in your time at Lyft. Caton, maybe you could go first. Yeah, so it's been a little more than four years when I started. The entire engineering team of Lyft was less than about 100 people. The data team itself was like four or five people. So the the structure of that team has been very fluid. Initially, most of the engineering teams themselves would do the data processes themselves, like uh, you know how, how it evolves. But as time progressed, we centralized a bigger data team that would manage the, the ETL processes, that would be the owners or the, the keepers of the fact and the dimension tables and would also create roll-up dashboards for the execs and for the for the company as a whole. Now that became the primary function of the data team. Eventually, but at that time we were still doing machine learning and we started, we had a lot of research science which sat completely in a different place than the data team. That's, they were uh, org with each of the teams themselves and they were responsible for actually writing code that would be shipped to production at some point. So uh, to that effect, most of the services initially at Lyft were written only in Python because if we had to do anything with machine learning, we had to ship models that were written by research science whose preferred language was Python. And so we actually had services. So we made a decision based on what would be the best for engineers as well as for research science at that point. And then, but these models were trained usually on a laptop or on some uh, data set separately in like one one hosted notebook. And then the model itself as an artifact was given down to the service team and the service team would manage it and maintain it and deploy it and so on. This doesn't scale quite a bit. And so what started happening is people started writing machine learning pipelines. And so now you would call these as machine learning engineers or machine learning pipeline engineers. They were, in the earlier part, they were actually the engineers who were, you know, part of a team. Let's take an example of ETA. Within ETA itself, we had a lot of uh, machine learning models being built. So some of the engineers took the responsibility of becoming machine learning pipeline engineers. They worked with the research science to develop and deploy models. And then there were some engineers who would just uh, work on the front-end service and you know there are lots of things to be done for ETA itself which are purely engineering driven without the machine learning so some engineers would work and so this was a very natural arguing that happened and eventually I think we realized that the fact tables and the dimension tables were getting too big and we had to handle a lot of data and understand a lot of data and we needed expertise so we started hiring a bunch of data engineers to help the data analysts then now they're called data scientists, to help with understanding and training models or, you know, extracting information from data that is useful to other parts of the company. This is further evolving where these data engineers now actually are are, are sitting next to the machine learning engineers and the engineering teams so that 
the data itself is available uh, in the most usable form to each of these teams. So uh, you absolutely hit the point. I think data, the structure of data engineering and machine learning engineering uh, teams is is completely fluid. We still have, I don't think we have found the right way yet, but we are constantly evolving. And I've seen this evol evolution over the last few years. And I, I, I assume that it's going to evolve in the next couple of years too. Yeah, so um, something else is when I, I did user research kind of within Lyft, talking to a bunch of machine learning engineers and data scientists, one phrase that I heard repeatedly was, you know, okay, you know, data scientists write the model and then they throw it over the wall to the engineer to kind of write the production scale pipeline. And that phrase was just echoed almost verbatim across both functions. And so one thing that we're seeing, right, like we, I mean, that's like a, a very clear indication that there's this kind of hurdle, or that at least there was this hurdle between these functions. Um, but what we're seeing too is, right, like the lines between these functions are getting blurred, as Kathan mentioned. I mean, we do see a kind of a convergence happening. And so kind of one, again, of like the predictions of flight is that over time, these functions really will blur. They kind of will be a singular function that just has different specializations. You might be more specialized in, you know, model creation or something like that. You might be slightly more specialized on the engineering side. But what you really want to do is get rid of that wall. And you can get rid of that wall through product. You can get rid of that wall through process. You can get rid of that wall through the definitions of the roles themselves. And so flight kind of plays a role in that by being a product that is intended to, to take down that wall, but then also to reflect eventually a convergence of these roles. I just wanted to add one more thing, actually, I realized, uh, I think uh, Ali absolutely hit one of the most interesting and important points for the genesis of flight. I was a lead on the team, and, and the problem that we had was research science would come up with like an idea of a model, and probably have a prototype uh, on some sample set of data. But to actually productionize it would take months. And and when the engineering team would come back and say that, hey, we would take months to actually productionize this, that would not be acceptable to research science. Because you want, you, you've thought about a model, you want quick feedback uh, from production. And that was very, very hard to achieve. And many times what would happen then is so that, that uh, that, that that goes to the first point, saying that infrastructure was the bottleneck. The second problem was that uh, there was this inherent thing that research science would create a model, and then the model was finally deployed by the engineers themselves, and then pager duty rotation, if I may say, was handled by the engineers themselves. That caused a lot of friction because in the middle of the night, I deployed a model, it caused a bunch of pages, I have no idea what to do. So the only course of action would be roll back that model. Now that may have further consequences of uh, on the analysis of that model. And so uh, it became actually harder and harder to manage uh, specifically uh, in situations like this or like in cases when the model would be given to an engineering team, the engineering team would say, hey, I'm going to do the pager duty for this. So let me rewrite this model. And this translation was not accurate. So you essentially ended up with sometimes losing some information while throwing over the wall, uh, over this imaginary wall. And that led to friction between the teams. And so one of the core principles of flight was we will not try to segregate these, thing, these teams, rather try to get them to work together and collaborate more effectively. Okay. So as we get into what flight actually is, my high-level understanding of it is this is a system that's built on top of Kubernetes. It orchestrates your machine learning or data workflows. And I think 
we're we're going to need to talk a little bit about what a workflow really entails and why it isn't why it involves different teams, why it involves this different hand, handoff process. Could you just give me an overview for what a data workflow is in the context of uh, flight? Yeah, so I think it's better if you take an example, right? Uh, let's take an example of ETA. Again, we've talked a lot about ETA, so we'll continue to talk about ETA. ETA essentially means estimated time of arrival. Uh, when you open up the app, you see how long a car would take to reach you. This seems a simple and naive, but it's actually very, very important for Lyft as a business. Because based on the ETA here, uh, from Lyft's point of view, is actually a reference between two points. And when we dispatch a car, we have to understand where the car is in reference to that user so that we can make better decisions, we can optimize our system better, and actually eventually affect our bottom line. So, so ETA is, as I said, is critical. But just to power that one simple number, you need to do a bunch of processes. For example, you need to know exactly where the location of a car is. Then you need to know how the road network is. Then you may need to know if there is traffic on the current road network. And then you may want to know how much time does it take to actually traverse that, those, that road network. And eventually, you may want to also add that this driver actually drives differently from this other driver. So he may be faster than this other driver. And this is the time of the day. In this time of the day, even though the traffic is low, it usually takes more time because we see more red lights or stop signs. So all of these things are impacts of um, that impacts a simple ETA. And these individual things calculated at using models. And uh, to compute these models, you need a bunch of data. And as I said, let's go just look at one of the models to compute traffic. To compute traffic, you need to understand the road network. We get the road network from something called as uh, OpenStreetMaps, uh, which is an open source mapping system with a lot of data. So you download the data, you extract the data, from the data you extract the road network, and on the road network now, at the same time, we analyze all the cars that are moving uh, in the lift system, and we understand that on this road network, the current movement or the traffic patterns in these specific road areas is X. Using that, we actually build a, uh, a routing engine model that gets deployed and then served. At the same time, uh, on the traffic itself, we may have biases because if there is a sudden accident in one place, we may shoot up the ETA. That's very undesirable because it could be, it may not be accurate because you know outliers happen. So how do you smooth out? So we have a layer on top that actually smooths out this basic model using some sort of historical trend analysis. And for that, we have now been analyzing the traffic for the last six months, one year, and applying it to this already uh, of the computed traffic at the moment. So you see that there are two pipelines that run and power one simple uh, computation. And both these pipelines have to happen at have to happen at some frequency. The traffic computation probably happens at every 10 minute interval or so. The historical trend analysis happens every week or so, gets updated all the time. And along with that, they also use different sets of data. One used an open source uh, data set, the other used the internal computer data set. And that creates 
the set of you know the workflow here means you take one data just like you you we talked initially when we were talking before that you have a workflow of you know you, you talk then you edit and then you post process and then you you know uh, launch your podcast same thing is a workflow for machine learning engineers yeah, I'll also add a little bit to that. And since I'm a product manager, I love analogies. So I'm going to use a little bit of analogy here. So I like to kind of describe tasks and workflows and kind of flights overall process. You're kind of like cooking a meal. So if you imagine like you're cooking a recipe, we can kind of consider that like a single workflow and you would have kind of different tasks as part of that. So if you're making pasta, you have to boil the pasta. Um, you kind of have to strain it afterwards. You have to make your sauce. Maybe you're making a side salad as part of that. And all these individual tasks go into cooking that meal. Or even actually... Probably um, a better analogy here is to consider this like the sauce itself as a single workflow, right? You have to like, you know, maybe chop the meat if you're doing that, chop the mushrooms, you have to, you know, boil the sauce on the stove, you have to kind of combine it all together and then out comes this amazing sauce at the end. So if you imagine that as kind of like maybe something the, uh, like, like, like our mapping team putting together the overall view of map, of the map at Lyft. And then, since you asked about kind of teams and the handoff process, you can imagine now that we have like a whole kitchen of chefs and everyone is creating their individual portion of that meal. And so there's a certain like, like amount of communication that needs to go in, in, into this, right? So you have a whole team that's just focused on the pasta and creating that, a whole team that's focused on the sauce. So a lot of these, you know, kind of are, are dependent on one another. You don't want to cook the pasta too soon. Like once the sauce is made, you might want to then start boiling the pasta. Um, that gets us into things like kind of events, event, event-based triggering space on uh, uh, workflows, right? So every time our mapping team produces a new map of Lyft, we want the ETA team and the pricing team to know that since their services depend on that map. It also kind of, just to abuse the analogy a little bit more, it can get into things like versioning, right? So if you're creating this Italian meal, um, you might at some point decide to update your sauce. Maybe you're putting more garlic in it now or something like that. I mean, that's important for the other teams to know. They might also change what they make or, or you know, how the salad is done or something depending on that new flavor being added in. Um, and so Flight kind of has to be aware of everything that everyone is making, also make it really easy for them to kind of, you know, maybe start their workflow when someone else's workflow finishes. And then also be aware of when there's updates happening to all these individual portions as well. So hopefully that helps a bit. Okay, so now that we've got an example and we've talked through this at a uh, from the point of view of an analogy, also let's talk about the actual interconnected systems. So maybe you've got uh, a data warehouse, you've got some blob storage, you've got Spark, you've got TensorFlow, you've got all these different interconnected systems that need to have their share of work along a data pipeline. How are these all getting instrumented together and and communicating with one another? So in the, in the, in the example of the real-time traffic case, without giving out too many details, <laughs> one of the first steps was, as I said, download the OpenStreetMaps data. These are in a specific format that OpenStreetMap publishes, and there are open source tools that we use to analyze and extract data out of that format. So that's written by there's a team or an individual who knows how to extract that data, and he writes that code. And usually uh, in Flight, you can write this code in Python, for example, or any other language. Uh, Flight is lang language agnostic, but the language of choice at Lyft is Python. So uh, flight comes with a toolkit called FlightKit, which allows you to write, uh, to express a function very easily. It's essentially like writing a Python function, annotating it with uh, something that says, hey, this is a 
Python function, I need X gigabytes of memory and Y number of CPU. And I need to, and if there is anything, I need X inputs and Y, and I produce Y as an output. And in the case of road network, you may take the, the date of the uh, map update as the input and the location of where to find that file as the input. And the output might be the road, road network, which might be some sort of a binary format. Now, once you have that, you write another function that could be a Spark function that actually takes the road network and maybe chops it up into pieces or creates a, a much more linearized model of uh, the road network. And this can be done in Spark. In uh, it, Spark would be much better because of the amount of data that you may want to handle. So in, in flight, again, writing a Spark function is just like writing a Python function. You just annotate it saying that it's a Spark function. And in this case, uh, I don't specifically need CPUs and memory. I need a uh, number of Spark cores to be X, number of Spark executors to be Y, and so on. And then you just write the code as if you're writing uh, on a, uh, either the Spark uh, repo or you're writing uh, in a, you know, PySpark code. So you write that and you again take some inputs and the inputs in this case was the road network, maybe something else that you want to apply to the road network and the output is the modified road network. Now let's say on top of this you want to train the model that adjusts the bias on this road network and you mentioned TensorFlow, maybe we could use a CNN model or we could use a XGBoost which is another popular black box framework to do gradient boosted decision trees. We could use a model to that's uh, based on XGBoost. And the input into that would be the road network and the output would be the trained model. And uh, you would do the training in as the function again. A cool thing about XGBoost or, or even uh, TensorFlow-like models are they are very black box models. They usually depends on the type of model, but XGBoost specifically can be run for any sort of data and it produces a model without too much help from the actual engineer in, in understanding how the model is structured. So uh, in this case, there could be a library function that just is, uh, that says train this XGBoost model given this data and it produces the model. And the last bit could be, hey, now I have the model, I have the road network with the traffic. Let's make sure that it actually works well by using some historical data. So let's, let's take a historical set of rides from Lyft. And in those scenarios, if we had this model, what would have in the ETA, for example, that, would have, that we would have predicted. And how would that have differed from the actual ETAs that we saw, right? So we actually gave out an ETA, and then the ride was taken, and then we actually saw the ETA as an exposed fact. And so we can now use this data set to validate that our model is actually making, improving the system. So uh, these are five steps that I mentioned, or four steps. Uh, you can string them together into one workflow or a pipeline, and uh, some of them could be written by specific engineers. As I said, you could download the data that the road extraction could be done by one engineer. The Spark stuff could be done by somebody who knows Spark better, and the and the XGPoo stuff can be actually just be a library function that we have written as the flight team and we are offering it to with, for the company to use and it's optimized for that. Uh, and then there are further things like hyperparameter optimization and so on that you can offer as common functions within flight. Um, and the last bit could be written by the, the data scientist in this case who's trying to make sure that the new model makes sense. And 
to trigger this, he just has to specify, he or she just has to specify the input date of the OSM dataset and the range of the lift writes to use as the validation set and maybe the range of writes to use for computing the traffic. And that's about it. The same functions can run together in harmony to create a model and also tell you the accuracy of this created model. Yeah, something else on top of that to highlight is that we designed Flight to be super extensible. So, for example, if, you know, you mentioned TensorFlow and Spark, but you can think of other execution engines that you might want to use. And then as well as, you know, if you didn't want to use Python uh, to write your tasks, you could also, you know, extend Flight to, you know, to be for any other language as well. So it makes it, you know, super easy to kind of adapt to your own needs. And so we're talking about a system that's written in Python. It's used to orchestrate different systems together. It can help us with data dependencies. Sounds a lot like Airflow, which is uh, made by Airbnb, which was originally made by Airbnb by an engineer there named uh, Max. That was many years ago. Why create a, a brand new system? Why did you create Flight when we already can take Airflow off the shelf? Very good question. So, when I started off uh, leading ETA, we did use Airflow in the beginning. It did help us in some way. We hacked up a lot of the Airflow <laughs> to make it work for our use cases. Uh, and the big, and then you know, as we as we delivered something, we got successful, and people wanted to use it more. And uh, at that point is when we uh, thought about uh, like if we could extend Airflow to make it work for all these various use cases, and and we found that. It it wouldn't work, and so we had to move to flight. But let me tell you, uh, like some basic differences. One thing I want to correct is <laughs> flight is actually written in GoLang. So the entire engine, the backend, and everything is written in GoLang. The interaction model that you see most common, which is called flight kit, is written in Python. And so uh, the biggest difference between Airflow and flight is, from an idea point of view, flight is completely data aware. That means it understands what's the data that's flowing through the system. While Airflow is a pure task dependency system. That means you as a user has to think about that task A comes after task B comes after task C and you arrange them in that way. In flight, you never have to think about it that way. You just have to say, my code is written so where I have a function whose data I produce, uh, I consume, it produces some data that I consume in some function B, whose data I produce and I consume in function C. Now, what is the structure of this DAG? It is natural, it's a DAG again, because it's called directed acyclic graph, but it is auto-computed from the code that's written by the users. And the way this DAG is computed is not because you arbitrarily put the tasks one after the other, it's because the consumption, because there is a producer-consumer relationship between who creates the data and who consumes the data. And for that to happen, you actually have to understand that there is data flow between these pieces. And so that's the other big difference in, in flight, where we actually had to model a complete type system uh, to understand that uh, a function can produce an integer and a string and a list of integers or a parquet file or whatever, and or a model. And they are all different things. And each of the... Uh, downstream functions can consume each one of them separately or together and that creates a different set of dependencies. For example, if a function A produces two integers and a, there are two functions that consume one integer each, 
both of them can go in parallel after function a. So to achieve that, we created, as I said, a type system. The other thing that we saw was a big problem with Airflow when we were using it was that if I if, if we write a, um, a new pipeline in Airflow and let's say that pipeline uses TensorFlow, the moment you import TensorFlow, the scheduler imports TensorFlow, the workers import TensorFlow, that means the, model, the, the version of TensorFlow has to be the same across all of them. Or you do tricks like, you know, too late importing of TensorFlow and so on. That would cause a bunch of problems in the scheduler and the worker. Besides that, there was no, uh, also when we would deploy a new version of the pipeline in Airflow, it actually just overrides the existing version of the pipeline. And let's say that pipeline is running in production at the moment and you deploy, the behavior is unknown. This was a anomaly for us because what we wanted to do was have a pipeline that runs in production and constantly deploy a new version just like we do with services without actually affecting the executions uh, that were already in progress. So that means after this epoch, every new execution is the new version of the pipeline. We also wanted to go back in time and execute older versions of the pipeline. So to achieve all of that, uh, we created a, a spec-based uh, DAG system. So you write code in Python, in FlightKit, uh, or in Golang, in some other flight Go kit, and it compiles down into a pure specification. And the specification says that here's the structure of the DAG, and flight just records that structure. And now when you want to execute, it uses this specification to rehydrate your code using containers and executes it in Kubernetes. So it's a it's a little different model from Airflow. It also allows building much more dynamic and uh, and uh, uh, hermetic systems. And by hermetic, I hear I mean that they are you can now have a full version trace. You can have a complete history of every execution. You can have a complete history of every uh, update that was done to a pipeline. And all of this can be done very easily without actually recording the code itself because it's recording the intermediate specification that's generated by the compilation system that's part of FlightKit. This also allows us to write different languages, right? And that's why uh, Ali was saying that we are not really language dependent. You could write it in Go if tomorrow that becomes hot for machine learning, or we could write it in Java because that's already hot. So that's one of the other reasons why we decided to uh, move away from Airflow. And of course, we are containers based. That means every execution is done in container that gives some isolation, prevents noisy neighbor problems, and we use Kubernetes. We are Kubernetes native, though Flight doesn't need to only use Kubernetes, but uh, that was a decision we made a couple years ago that we are, our current implementation, we're gonna absolutely be Kubernetes native. So uh, every execution happens at Kubernetes, and uh, you get the entire power of Kubernetes uh, given to you while in Airflow. That's a very different way of thinking from the way Airflow thinks about tasks and, and dependencies. I don't know if that answers it's a roundabout answer, but it's a bigger discussion than just probably a, a talk. Was there a point at which you were encountering chronic problems in executing these data workflows where you just said, okay, that's it. We're going to implement a brand new system. We are fed up with this. Can you take me to that pain point? <laughs> uh, yes. So this is 
16 um i want to say i don't actually remember the time correctly <laughs> uh, like it's like it's funny how you forget the pain points <laughs> i was uh, a new lead on the eta team and uh, one of our engineers had actually written all the pipelines for the eta team on his laptop and he would run it uh, manually uh, one after the other really the steps the steps of the workflow and the first thing that i did when i joined the team was like this cannot scale it was with all respect to the engineer it was not he, he had no other choice he was one guy running the entire team so <laughs> when i joined the team we were like hey we need to improve this process and i was responsible for you know productionizing all of this so like we looked around and we we're like how do we automate a workflow and what's the state of the art in the in the open source community today and amazingly there was just very few solutions one of them was airflow and we had an airflow installation at the company uh, and the etl etl repo and so we went to them and we're like hey we want to run this as part of your uh, installation and they're like nope we are already they were running only on like one or two machines and it was already underwater and they were as i said they were four four people right so uh, it was it was um, a hard time for them and we had no other choice but to create our own airflow cluster so we created and i spent about a weekend to create uh, my own airflow cluster and we moved all the his uh, the the engineers work and some other stuff into airflow we spent about like a month doing all signs all sorts of weird hacks we allowed airflow to essentially pass data between tasks in some way and doing all of that we were able to deliver the model that we wanted to deliver and don't get me wrong airflow is a great concept it works really well uh, flight actually is very thankful to airflow and max is a great friend of mine so we did get a, a lot of influence from airflow's idea of operators and like things of extensibility and so on but where we really got affected was that that we we wanted to launch these models dynamically on the user really wanted to like say i want to run this model right now and here are the set of inputs in Airflow, it's all time-driven. So people would like run things on a schedule, which is great. But the moment you want to run something on demand, Airflow doesn't really allow you to do that very well. The other thing uh, where we started having problems is we had huge models and, and we deployed the first Airflow cluster that was about 50 or 60 machines at Lyft uh, within this team. And, and as the models were computed, one execution would affect the other execution and and they started uh, thrashing each other uh, and that's because there were no containers or things like that right and so we had to use various airflow intrinsics to improve that situation and we did quite a bit uh, with poolings and uh, special queues and so on but because of the lack of because of lack of isolation at some point this would come and affect us but even with within one team, this is great, right? It works fine. What happened is with all this success with this one team, other teams wanted to use this infrastructure as we had done once with going to ETL saying that I want to run my stuff on your Airflow cluster. Somebody else came to me and can you run, can I run it on your cluster? And I'm like, no, I get paged all the time. If I run one more thing, I will die. And so at that point, we decided to just take a step back and think about what would the ideal system be? And this did not say that we would rewrite everything. This just said what the ideal system should be and if we could retrofit all of this in Airflow. And the answer to that question came out as no. 
And then we looked around and we're like, okay, do we find any other system? We looked at Luigi, we looked at a couple of, none of those systems fit that requirement. And we saw an evolution that was happening in the machine learning space, which you're like, okay, more collaboration, more sharing, more understanding of the data, more memoization, cataloging, all of these things are the needs of the future. And we don't have a system that fits that need. And under a lot of pain, we actually decided to embark on a journey to build it. And this was early 2017. It's the first paper we wrote. And we actually, in a month or month and a half, we had flight one operational. And that was in, I think, August or September of that year. Because till then, we were just you know debating whether to use Airflow or not. And we were like just trying to support our uh, current infrastructure. And in September, we launched uh, flight one with having only about a month of effort, and it was hugely successful. It, it was like uh, one team adopted it. They were able to deliver a model after about a year. First time they were able to deliver a model in a year. And once that success happened, other teams came on, and the ramp was phenomenal. And the moment we saw that, we were like, oh, shit, we've built something in a month. It's called, and people really like it. So I think there is something here. So let's really formalize and build a platform that takes those principles and the learnings and actually delivers on our future goals. And that's what flight two internally, externally, we just call it flight. So we have actually gone through an evolution, complete evolution. That's why it took, it's been two and a half years in the making and it's been running in production for a couple of years. So it's not that we thought about this overnight and we built it. We really spent a lot of time and we had to debate and fight it internally within ourselves to make sure that this is the right approach. Was there anything about the fact that you could build in 2016? That's uh, if I remember the timeline correct, that's basically shortly after the container orchestration wars had ended, the world had settled on Kubernetes and we could all agree that like, okay, this is the thing we're all going to build distributed systems on. Now that we've got this figured out, what else can we build on top of that? And that's kind of, you know, if you compare the pre-Kubernetes world to the post-Kubernetes world, pre-Kubernetes world, okay, let's all just use Airflow. But post-Kubernetes world, you say, well, you know, now that we have Kubernetes, should we reimagine this entire thing on top of uh, Kubernetes. Was there something about Kubernetes that made this whole flight system way easier to build? So flight one was not really Kubernetes dependent. It was container. We actually think the real difference happened with containers, right? Just that we could execute containers in isolation. But as we moved on, and that was 2017, as I said, 2017, mid 2017 to about end of 2017, by that time, Kubernetes was maturing, right, really. I think even though 2016, the container wars ended or the orchestration war ended between Kubernetes and Mesos and so on, I think Kubernetes was still nascent in early 2017. But by early 2018, we, in our team, internally, we started talking. We're like, I think Kubernetes is going to win, right, and big win, right? This It's going to change the way we think about many of our systems. So we... We took flight one, which is learnings of how we think we could create a platform for users that they don't really need, need to think about machines and how it works for machine learning and data. And we were, we were actually searching for the right target platform. And in 2018, Kubernetes uh, happened, uh, or for us, we discovered Kubernetes. And 
that influenced the complete design of flight two which is what you see outside so um, the actual architecture of flight is very similar and the open source flight is very similar to kubernetes itself and that was because of the winds in Kubernetes. But the actual problems that we are trying to solve are because of our, uh, our tryst with uh, Airflow and our learnings from trying to serve people in data and machine learning. So I, I think maybe I answered your question uh, that, it, yes, Kubernetes did affect us, but it's not the reason why we created Flight. It did uh, improve the design of Flight, I would say. So there's some different architectural components of flight that I'd like to maybe walk through a different perspective of of an example you've already given. So we have these things like there's the flight admin service, there's the flight uh, flight propeller. I'd like to go through the architecture of flight through the eyes of an example. So maybe you could revisit the ETA example and talk about how this is actually executing on flight in terms of the architectural components of flight. Great question. And uh, just for the users or uh, listeners for your podcast, if if they want to get a visual sense of all of this, there is a document in on our docs uh, in flight.org. And uh, there are a couple of pictures. Our documentation is a little sparse. We're improving it all the time, but I think these two questions are in there. But uh, let me, as, as I said, as a user of Flight, you write your code in Python uh, using FlightKit, and you build a container that contains your code. Now, just touching back into the concepts, each flight workflow consists of tasks. Each task is nothing but, you can think of it like a Python function. Uh, and we can have, and flight, we can have one container per function. Uh, it could be a different container, it could be the same container, doesn't matter. You build a container or the set of container images, you upload them to a Docker registry, and it could be your own private registry like ECR, it could be GCR, ECR, or it could be Docker Hub. There's, we, we don't, uh, we don't comment on it, it's up to you to decide which one you want to use. Once you do that, you, we have another tool that allows you to compile your workflows into a specification and upload them into Flight Admin Service. Flight Admin Service is the control plane of Flight. It actually stores all these compiled specifications for the tasks and the workflows in its own inventory system. Um, and the, the system is cataloged using a, a SQL database but the actual, uh, the actual blob data or the large data is stored in uh, blob store like S3. And most of these specifications are really lightweight uh, in terms of uh, like a large workflow with 500 steps. The specification is probably a few hundred to maybe less than, a, uh, sometimes less than a kilobyte to a few hundred kilobytes in the worst case. And so now you can store a history of the, all the uh, changes in a workflow structure over a period of time in, in very little amount of data. Now that's done by Flight Admin. Flight Admin just stores and records everything and it's cataloged. Flight Admin drives Flight Console and Flight CLI. Flight Console is where the users go and they can look at the history of all of the previously recorded workflows or uh, they can create launch a new execution. Let's say I want to start a new execution. So you select the workflow and a launch plan. We don't have to get into details of that. And you say launch. Because we understand we have a type system, we understand that this workflow to launch 
needs three inputs and one of them is defaulted let's assume those three inputs are in the example of ETA in the traffic example that we took about we said there would be three inputs that the user gives one of them was the range of data for which we have to get the rides the range of data for which we want to actually get the locations data from which we extract the traffic and let's say the third one is the location from where you want to get the OSM uh, OpenStreetMaps data uh, so these are the three inputs let's say the OpenStreetMap data is always defaulted because there's just one place to really get it. So when you hit launch on the launch console in flight, it will say, yeah, you need to provide the ranges for where I can get, uh, how, from when I can get the data for the rides and for the locations. And this form is created automatically. And the user selects two dates, hits launch, mm -hmm. and that causes an execution. What's happening is that execution request is sent to flight admin, Flight admin goes through its inventory, finds the right workflow to execute, pulls that out, compiles it again, and this compiling is the second time compiling that it converts to an executable format. And this executable format is now targeted to Flight Propeller, which is a Kubernetes extension. Kubernetes has this interesting concept of custom resource definitions. So like if you are aware of uh, any Kubernetes resources like pods or services or things like that. Flight workflow is an extension that was added to that is added to Kubernetes if you install flight. It behaves just like a pod. So it it you can interact with it using a YAML or you can interact with it using kubectl, right? If you're um, if you're uh, if you're familiar with that. What flight admin does is converts that intermediate representation of the workflow combines the inputs that were provided by the user and converts it to a flight workflow Kubernetes extension format and then and then just basically submits it to Kubernetes. Now when it goes to Kubernetes, Kube API understands that, oh, I have a thing called as flight workflow. Let me see if there is a handler for this guy and that handler is flight propeller. And then it hands it over to flight propeller and flight propeller starts handling the workflow. We can we'll not get into the details of how that runs, but uh, eventually, Flight Propeller drives the workflow to completion, and as it is driving things to completion, it is sending back events to Flight Admin saying that, "Hey, you told me about this workflow. This workflow has completed X, Y, Z, and so on," and eventually says, "Oh, it's done." Right? Flight Propeller itself is just the execution engine that runs through the workflow or the graph. But for each of the steps within the workflow, we have a concept of flight plugins. So you can actually add these backend plugins that extend the capabilities of flight. For example, I want to teach flight how to run Spark. You write a plugin that knows how to run Spark on Kubernetes, or maybe Spark on EMR, or Spark on Kubol, or so on. In our case, we run Spark on Kubernetes, and so when Flight Propeller gets to a step that wants Spark, it just hands that control over to the plugin, which says, okay, I know how to run Spark on Kubernetes. It runs Spark on Kubernetes, gives back the control to Propeller, and then it Propeller sends back all the information back to admin. And this makes the system completely decoupled because you could potentially go and replace Flight Propeller. Flight Admin doesn't care about it. it as long as it knows how to compile and target a format, it can do that. You can also go and replace Flight Admin with your own admin service. Flight doesn't care about it. 
There's also a third service that we didn't talk about. It's called the cataloger, the memoization service. So flight propeller, when it's actually executing, is actually talking to a catalog memoization service and recording all the inputs and outputs that from every task and whether it has previously seen and thus replacing it. And that's also replaceable. You could actually go and bring in your catalog service as long as you can follow the same interface. Yeah, I was actually just going to mention, mention data catalog service. I think it's worth highlighting it a, a little bit in addition to admin and propeller because it has the potential to save teams and then therefore companies a lot of time and money and just make things more efficient. Where basically if you have a task in flight, well, you know, the, the, the data catalog will be intimately aware of its inputs and outputs and when that task was last run. And so if it's a sort of task that doesn't need to be run every time, or if it, you know, if, if you ran it with, you know, let's say you ran it on Tuesday, this this workflow, and so it computed some output for that task, and then you're gonna, you know, rerun it again later on that day because you're iterating, or just like the next day is part of, you know, some other workflow triggering. Um, you can mark that task as cacheable or in flight terminology discoverable. Um, and therefore the data catalog, if it sees that you recently ran this task with the exact same inputs, um, it'll just automatically send over that, that pre-computed output. So it won't rerun that task, and therefore your, ex your, your workflow executes a ton faster, um, and you also save you know, the computation costs that you would have done otherwise. So basically, if you're always kind of repeating or re repeatedly running the same sort of workflow, um, it doesn't always need to recompute every task. Um, and it's super, super valuable. It's helped um, the teams that we service you know, speed up their, their iterations a lot faster. Okay. A use case for that is like debugging, right? Like one step, like your workflow is 15 steps long, 15th step fails. You don't want to pay the penalty of running those 14 steps, which would have taken hours to days in our data processing and machine learning case. So you just fix that last step, rewrite the code. So it's not really like resuming, right, the existing workflow. It's running a new version of the workflow. Only one task was updated and Flight figures that out and it, runs through the 14 steps in like a few seconds or one second and then you just jump to the 15th step and and that's essentially preventing first saving money for the users and saving time great okay so to draw to a close i know we're we're up against time but maybe you could each go through your predictions for the near future of data engineering. Like I've done a bunch of shows recently on data engineering and there is a lot of change going on and a lot of different ways of doing things. So I'd just love to get both of your perspectives on changes that we're going to see in the near future in terms of infrastructure, open source tools, and, and uh, team structure. Yeah, so I think we have created an, created an arbitrary divide between machine learning and data processing or data. There's this old terminology called ETLs, uh, extraction, transformation, and loading. It's the same as machine learning pipelines. You extract the data, you transform it to a model, and you finally load it to a service, right? So it's like if I squint and I look at both of them, I see both of them to be two arms of the same structure. So eventually I feel that data or a successful team is where data ML work in cohesion and together and try to deliver the output for the company. The other bit is that there is really like machine learning is really penetrating almost all parts, all acts of data. The traditional transformations are no longer existing also. We are using machine learning in increasingly to it to understand data better. And that in turn generates more data that 
that creates new models that generates more data. So this is a virtuous cycle. And so one of the aspects of machine learning is that the, the, it, it seems to be a very hard thing to start using, but it's very interesting to see that the, the trend is that there are many, many models for which you really don't need to understand a lot of machine learning. What you need to understand is your data and you need to completely be well-versed with your data and use that data well with an uh, with a set of ensemble set of models and that generates value for the business. So I think there is going to be some grouping or, or coming together for various teams to, or uh, alignment rather, uh, let me say this this way. Uh, I think there is going to be more alignment in the future in terms of uh, data and machine learning. And I think machine learning is definitely going to penetrate all parts of data. And I think a successful team is which brings these two arms of the same beast and makes them work together. And I think uh, that's why you need a unified platform to solve both, both these problems. Yeah, I almost reiterate things that Keithan already said, but I think one, one important thing to stress here is that for any modern business these days, you have to have a good wrangle on your data in order to be successful at all. And we're seeing this across all sorts of different dimensions, like, you know, classically tech companies, as well as, you know, companies that are kind of now entering tech in order to survive. And I think it's also really important to remember that, you know, machine learning is fundamentally a data problem, right? Like, Data is, you know, 80% right now of the hassle of machine learning, whether it's wrangling and cleaning the data itself or the infrastructure. With that, it's important to remember that machine learning is basically, it's a solution type, right, for employing data at scale. It's, it's really a vertical, but it is so powerful that we, we tend to talk about it like it's completely separate and it's just this other thing. But, but really, ML and data are, are kind of synonymous when, when you look at it. So you have a bunch of data. You need to use that data effectively for your business. Machine learning is one of those tools of, you know, for which you can, you can kind of employ that data. And so as Kathan mentioned, we really see the space converging. I think that we're talking about machine learning separately right now because it does require kind of new tools, um, a different way of looking at data, and therefore there's like all this kind of emerging, you know, all these emerging offerings in the space. Um, but the more that we can kind of unify these two concepts in these two spaces and, and really think of it as one, the more powerful that is. And so I think because of that, we do see kind of the need for a single platform, both from like a product perspective, from the process perspective of data is machine learning. And then also, again, from from kind of uh, the roles that individuals play also converging. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you both. It's been really great talking and I'm very interested in following Flight closely. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. 